So uh, I would like to kick things off by saying welcome and hello. My name's Bonnie. I'll be moderating the call today. And today we're talking about stewarding your community's future. Um, and these calls are brought to us uh, bi-weekly by the good folks of the Orton Family Foundation. Um, and today we're joined by Stephen Ames, the principal of Stephen Ames Planning and Next Consulting Group. And Lee Hi there, Hey. Uh, and we're also joined by Lee Stewart, Program Officer at Duluth Local Initiative Support Corporation. Hi. <laughs> so really excited to have these guys with us today. Um, before we get started, I'm just going to give a little sense of the agenda and the protocols for the call. Um, we do ask that when you join, you put yourself on mute uh, so that we can have a really clear and, and uh, open line. Um, and then you're invited to take notes and access the Google Doc that we have available for everyone on the call. And you can take notes in there. You can share case studies, any information for things that you might find relevant or that you think other people on the call might find relevant. Uh, and you can also use that to ask questions of our speakers today. What I'd ask is if you do put a question in, please add your name to the end of the question and then I can call on you directly and you'll be able to take yourself off mute and ask that question to our speakers and really join in and have a, a good, fruitful conversation. The, no the notes that we collect today will be made available to you after the call with the PDF. Uh, any questions that we might not get to, we'll make sure that they get answered in that document. So if you do have stuff that you don't think we're going to get a chance to get to, please do add them in. Um, and we're also recording the call, so uh, there will be a podcast made available for you to download and listen to at your leisure. Um, we're going to have a, some quick introductions from Stephen and Lee, and then open up the forum for conversation. So get ready with your questions and, and uh, warm up your vocal cords, because we'll be asking everyone to join in. So before we get started, please just check that you've put yourself on mute so that we don't get any background noise. Um, and without further delay, I'll hand over to Stephen to share some stories about his recent work. Great. Thanks a lot, Bonnie. It's a really pleasure to join uh, the Orton team and Bonnie Shaw from Washington, D.C. for this call. I'm uh, phoning in from Bend, Oregon today in uh, the high desert of Central Oregon. It's a beautiful, sunny day here today. Um, uh, I was asked about one year ago to consider mm -hmm. taking on a uh, fellowship with the Orton Family Foundation, which, as you know, is based in Middlebury, Vermont. Uh, the Orton Foundation, through its heart and soul community planning process, has been um, uh, developing uh, new planning models, ways for smaller towns and, and cities uh, to uh, to go about uh, engaging the public in, in planning for the long-term future of their communities. And um, the, the purpose of the fellowship that I, I took on was to explore a very specific topic. And that topic was, once the plans are done, once the community has begun to engage uh, the local public in some kind of planning process, um, and they have reached a certain milestone in their work, what can they do to sort of further their work over time? And I think Orton, the Orton Foundation has a very specific um, interest in that question because, as some of you may know, through the Community Matters conferences or the Orton website, the foundation um, has uh, been going through rounds of assistance to small towns in the New England and and, um, and Rocky Mountain regions to help um, targeted uh, cities and towns with their planning efforts. And uh, these uh, projects, these partnership projects that they undertake, uh, usually involve some kind of grant to the local community. You can find out more about 
the partnership program at the website. But uh, those, uh, the feeling was that once the Orton Foundation had sort of exited that process, provided assistance, uh, they're really keen to uh, assure that local communities that have engaged in this kind of activity continue to have success over time. So that was the topic that was tossed my way. What is it that communities can do to continue and further their success? Because we all know that plants have a tendency to gather dust and go on shelves and that's the last thing any of us want to do. So we went about framing this study. Uh, we, uh, I, first thing I did was interview a lot of experts uh, from around the country, sort of people who are known in the planning world or in the community engagement or in, in the areas of public participation, and, um, and asked them a lot of general questions about what makes for successful community engagement efforts. Uh, we also sampled the Orton network, both the practitioners who work with Orton and other people who are aligned with or aligned with the um, with the foundation about uh, specific communities that they might suggest uh, that would make good case studies for successful communities where they really have had a great deal of success in terms of um, uh, you know uh, continuing their uh, planning and engagement efforts over time. And uh, the third thing we did was to go out on the Orton website and to find uh, communities that would uh, might want to nominate themselves as good case studies. So we both heard from the experts and from people out in the field. And I'm pleased to say when you hear from Lee Stewart this afternoon, um, Lee's uh, community, West Duluth, which is part of the greater Duluth area in Minnesota, was one of those uh, communities that self-nominated for the study and made the test. We initially had over, oh, between 20 and 25 uh, cities and towns we looked at. We narrowed that down to 10 communities and finally down to 10 different case studies. Very diverse group of uh, communities, um, Covington and Oxford, Georgia, in Newton County, Georgia, uh, two small towns, uh, the, the city of Hastings, Michigan, in Barry County, um, in southwestern Michigan, uh, Hillsboro, Oregon, a, a city that's uh, close to where I live, out here in the, it's in the Portland metropolitan area, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, a seat, an old seaport town in New Hampshire, and finally, as I mentioned before, West Duluth, um, the West Duluth neighborhood. These communities were really represented a stretch for the foundation because, as I mentioned, the foundation has, uh, till, up to this time, work, been working primarily in New England and more recently in the um, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana area in the Rocky Mountains. Um, but we chose communities from all over the country. We chose small towns. I think our smallest town was around 7,000 people. The largest was actually fairly large for a quote-unquote small town, Hillsborough, with 90,000 people. But they had a great case study we wanted to include. And we also chose projects whose initial planning efforts that they undertook came from all kinds of things. There was a community uh, in uh, Georgia where they focused primarily on the rural land use planning issues and the update of local comprehensive plans. In Hastings, Michigan, where it was a community foundation that was working with the local community. In West Duluth, where it was a community development corporation that Lee will tell you a little bit about in just a minute here. Um, the city of Portsmouth, a very unique project called Portsmouth Listens, which is about deliberative democracy, finding tools and ways to involve uh, citizens in more deliberative, productive uh, you know, deliberations on, on key public issues. And finally, uh, Hillsborough, Oregon, which was a, sort of a classic community visioning process, a community engagement uh, focused on creating a very long-term vision for the community and an action plan to, to achieve it over time. We looked at five specific themes, and this was part of my thesis after doing those general interviews. Uh, and these themes were 
five areas where we felt there's a lot of potential to promote uh, the stewardship of community planning engagement. The first was honoring local values. In other words, how does a, a community remain connected to its core values and use those values uh, to influence uh, public decisions and planning and policy? The second area was sustaining citizen engagement. In other words, what are the tools that keep citizens involved after the initial planning process is over? How do you keep participation from falling off? Uh, how do you keep citizens interested in uh, having a voice in where their communities are headed? The third was uh, actually achieving visions and plans, and this was kind of the idea that, uh, well, how do you just in real time really keep a plan from gathering dust on the shelf? What, what can you do to... Uh, really make sure that a plan happens, that it, uh, it, it is implemented. The fourth theme we looked at was holding leaders accountable because we recognize that you can have the best, you know, community-based plan in the world, um, but uh, if your local officials aren't plugged into it, if they're not interested in it, or if you just have a high turnover, for example, in terms of local officials, these can become barriers to continuing to engage the community and achieving its decision over time. And finally, sort of in response to the recognition that we live in very volatile times and that there's a lot of uh, churn happening out there, particularly since, um, you know, the, the global financial crisis of a few years back, we, uh, we looked at the theme of responding to a changing world. How can the community use its ongoing planning engagements activity to, to keep citizens, neighbors, um, and local elected officials uh, responding in a proactive way to all the change that's coming down the pike because it's not a, a static environment that we live out there. We, After a result of that, we did a case study for each of our five communities, and I know that you've been provided a draft version of the document that you can read online, and the, the final report, which will be available in PDF, will be out in a couple weeks, so and it will be a lot prettier to look at, I think. Um, but we did a case study for each of the uh, five communities, which sort of said both what was their initial planning effort like and now how are they carrying forward. And and then we looked at some larger larger themes uh, in terms of uh, what are some big conclusions. I'm not going to focus on those right now because I know that we've heard already from people that folks are really interested in specific tools and ideas. So the last thing I'm going to mention is just some of the specific approaches and tools that some of our communities use to address these five themes that I talked about. Under, In terms of honoring local values, one of the most productive uh, techniques that we saw and we saw it used in a variety of communities was telling stories. And this is something that's uh, very close uh, to the heart and soul planning method of the Orton Foundation. The idea is that when you engage people in a community, oftentimes uh, you can create greater commonality and a greater sense of purpose and sort of get around the the more day-to-day -day barriers that keep people from collaborating or working together by sharing stories that uh, speak to a community's myths, to its core values, um, and to shared experiences that people have. The city of Portsmouth, for example, through its, um, uh, well, through the Portsmouth Listens Project, uses a commonality question for every group meeting that they have, and they have hundreds of meetings uh, in study circles that they do there as part of their deliberative process. And every meeting starts with a commonality question, which has nothing to do with the topic that people are talking about. People are asked about a shared experience, what did tell us about the first time you went to camp, or, you know, something like that. And people go around, and what they find is that after sharing a common experience like that, a lot of barriers drop down and dialogues become more, not only more robust, but also more open. 
another thing that Portsmouth Listen does is to promote this notion of deliberative d- democracy. And one of the ways they do that is every time they have a group meeting, they always have agree- groups agree to ground rules uh, for their discussions that are uh, developed and approved by the group. So if you have a group of people meeting, the first thing that group does is agree to a set of, if you will, guiding principles to make sure that their conversations work. And they also use a tool called Dialogue Framing Questions, which is explained in the Portsmouth case study. Under uh, sustaining citizen engagement, uh, one of the most uh, proactive things we found was from the city of Hillsborough in Hillsborough, Oregon. Um, they, uh, through the Hillsborough 2020 visioning process, they've been working on implementing their vision action plans for 12 years now. They're now in their third generation of, uh, of implementing their plans with incredible success in terms of actually getting stuff done. And Hillsborough struggled at first because they really had trouble getting people in the community to connect with their community action plan, the people who hadn't been, had not been involved in the process. And what they found over time is that by branding their process very, with a very strong identity and getting that identity out there into the community, in this case, Hillsborough 2020, our, um, our, hometown, our a sustainable hometown to the future was their tagline, um, they started to make sure that that process was uh, better known and recognized, and even more importantly, when they began to implement things from their action plan, specific items for implementation in the community, having a brand on that did two things. One, it made whoever was working on on a very specific action feel like they were part of a larger community vision, and that gave them a lot more street cred, if you will. And the other thing is, in turn, it gave the vision more credibility because over time, it uh, accumulated this incredibly long list of, of small and large successes in the community that are branded with the 2020, the 2020 brand. Um, in terms of achieving uh, visions and action plans, there were a, a lot of tools and techniques uh, that people used. One of the things that most impressed us was in West Duluth uh, with their uh, uh, neighborhood revitalization plan. They have a quarterly accomplishments report that, that not only tracks what's happening in the community, but actually does it in a geographical way with GIS mapping. And Lee might be able to tell you a bit more about that technique. In terms of holding leaders accountable, I think this is one of the most important things that communities need to do in order to make sure that the future, uh, current and future elected leaders are sensitive to what the community has said and to continue to honor those things. And um, this theme area gave us probably the most profound conclusion of the entire study, and that is collaboration. Every one of our five communities, uh, everything they have achieved has happened because they have reached beyond the original group that created the plan. If it was a city plan, they brought the community in. If it was a community-based plan, they brought leadership in. If it was a leadership-based plan, they did education around the community and built partnerships to make sure it happens. And I think collaboration uh, in these tough times with small local budgets, and uh, and people overwhelmed with information in, a, in an information-intensive world, uh, this collaborative partnerships is really one of the ways to go. The other thing that I think was really uh, impressive in this area was the whole notion of developing new leadership, new leadership in a community. And uh, the city of Hastings in Michigan has done a terrific job by actually educating local elected officials on key issues, policy issues that are breaking in their area so that they are more informed and can do a better job, and it's been a very collaborative process. Finally, in terms of responding to a changing world, this is my perhaps the toughest one because there are 
all kinds of things out there, both man-made disasters and natural disasters and the changing economy, you know, everything from climate change to peak oil. Um, all these kinds of issues are really shifting the ground underneath small communities in particular, which have less resources to address big uh, global issues. And I think, again, this notion of educating leadership to a changing world um, is, has really proven to be very effective. In Hastings, Michigan, they asked local elected officials, what are the things you need to know about in terms of emerging trends and issues to do a better job? And then they developed seminars for the local elected officials uh, to, to scale them up. I think I'll stop there. I've used up my time. I want to turn it over now to uh, Lee uh, Stewart from um, the West Duluth neighborhood and so she can talk a little bit about their neighborhood revitalization plan. And this, again, is one of our five key case studies. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Bonnie. Good to be with you all. Um, again, I'm uh, the program officer for Duluth LISC, and that's part of the National Local Initiative Support Corporate Corporation Network. I've been in Duluth about a year. Um, and I want just to start with uh, sort of four things that uh, you need to know. I want to have a vision of kind of what Duluth is like and what West Duluth is like. First off, West Duluth is a really well-defined neighborhood within Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm not thinking many of you have been here. Minnesota, Duluth, Minnesota has about 86,000 people in it. It's a very long and skinny city on the shores of Lake Superior and the major tributary to the lake, which is the St. Louis River. So Duluth is 26 miles long, end-to-end, -end, but almost everything is squished within the first two miles from the shoreline. And that rises over a thousand feet in that first mile and so it's like on a steep hill along a lake is what you can think about we have two downhill ski areas in town it's so hilly <laughs> um west duluth has about 7,700 people and is really geographically separate from the core city uh it bears all of the scars of centuries of of uh boom bust heavy industry in the 16 and 1700s it was the center for the beaver trade in the 1800s timber and uh, in the 1900s, uh, iron and, and particularly the development of the Iron Range and the center of shipbuilding throughout World War II up and through until uh, the 1960s. All of that declined significantly by the 60s and 70s, uh, exacerbated by the, the ever-present freeway construction, uh, which gutted industrial neighborhoods, and then a relocation of a paper mill, which took out another couple of hundred houses, uh, so by the early 80s, West Duluth was already galvanized to start citizen planning because it was clear that um, uh, they were, you know, nothing else was going to, this community wasn't going to survive uh, what was happening to it. So that's kind of the picture of West Duluth, but Duluth as a whole has an astonishing local government. The mayor is 38 years old. Most of the city council is either that or younger. Um, where the whole community is branded now by a vision of 90 by 20, which is by 2020 we want to have 90,000 people living here and use Duluth as a model for the recreation of an industrial city to a regional diversified economy, and we're kind of well on the way to doing that. Um, what, where, how, how this has shaped up in neighborhood planning is I've been part of the uh, – Revision. There, there were neighborhood revitalization plans that were created in West Duluth and four other core neighborhoods in 2007, 2008. And they set very defined goals for increasing investment in housing and real estate, economic development, uh, access to quality education, improve, improving family income and assets, and building healthy and safe environments. Uh, 
These things were laid out again 2007, 2008. And in West Duluth alone, thanks to the tracking set system that Stephen mentioned a bit, we can knock, document 400 improvements in specific housing. Some of that is new housing. Some of it is removal of blight. Some of it is uh, uh, re reuse of former industrial buildings, but we know exactly where they are and how this all happened. Because from, from, I, I have a very jaundiced idea about plans often that they gather dust. So I was fascinated by what West Duluth did for the implementation. I think there are three things to know. One is that it works through a collaboration of 25 neighborhood nonprofit and government organizations, and they've picked where they want to work. So everybody has agreed that all of the resources that are going to be focused in West, West Duluth are on specific focused areas that the West Duluth Community Development Corporation, the West Duluth Business Group, the city, LISC, the state housing organizations, everybody agrees this is where we're going to invest our funds and these are what, these are the projects we're going to work on. Uh, there are a couple of other collaboratives that are key to this. Um, in addition to the at home, which is the nonprofit groups, the city of Duluth has created its own kind of collaborative, so we have a blight collaborative where they bring in the police and the fire and the public safety and um, the sanitation district to, again, target specific areas where and specific properties. They've got a one, one catalog for all of the blighted properties in town and meet monthly to take, out, take action steps on which ones of those. And there have been probably a uh, hundred a blight removal project successful in West Duluth. Uh, very important thing happened today. I started to share two stories. One is we celebrated Community Development Day in Duluth today at a new community center, which is part of a elementary school that was rebuilt as Duluth had a major reorganization of its school system. And a pilot project in West Duluth was to develop the school and the neighborhood park, which was right adjacent to it, and is having part of the school a the, the youth services component of another nonprofit. So the children who have this, it, it, we call it the Sparks Program, school and parks. And that's now going to become the norm in Duluth, that as, as schools get built or redevelopment developed, it's combined with redevelopment of the local parks. And the programming between the youth, the youth services, both nonprofit and city, the parks and the schools all go hand in hand. And that, that will allow the after school programs to really be in school programs, if you will. You know, that the tutor, because they'll still have access to the entire school. I'm not sure if I'm making much sense about this, but what it really is, is that the heart of the youth program is now part of the school and that's all part of the park as well. So that, that's an example of how the collaboration works. And then right, right down the road from that is something called MACV, which is the Minnesota Council for Assistance to Vet Veterans, which took a blighted property that was identified by the community and converted it to permanent and affordable, permanent and transitional housing for uh, formerly ho homeless veterans. And this was a case of, of what Stephen talks about, adherence to local values. West Duluth has been a... You know, because of its war history and everything else, has been a tremendous source of um, veteran pride. And this was a, a way to uh, fix blight, honor veterans, make more affordable housing, and also develop a recreation area next to it. So those are the sorts of things. Uh, that's just a brief snapshot. I could go on and on and on.
<laughs> about recreational corridors that includes our ski areas and baseball fields and hockey rinks and all kinds and a hundred mile link to bike paths, uh, our hundred sixty kilometers of cross country ski trails in West Duluth, many 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 things, uh, but, and the fast growth of the West Duluth Business Group over the last few months. But there's just tremendous vitality there, and these citizen plans and involving a lot of people have made it happen. So that's my time. One thing I. One thing I just might add, this is Stephen again, that I might add uh, to Lee's story is that what I found most fascinating is that West Duluth had really fallen on tough times and then kind of become sort of a forlorn part of the city when it started its revitalization efforts. Now, today, it's a place where young people are moving in in droves. You know, it's got that old grid structure of an older neighborhood with places you can walk to. Younger people like that. They're moving in, starting businesses. It's, you know, kind of funky businesses and stuff like that that might be new to the older residents who live there, but it really has been fascinating to watch um, this older great big, three, great big three-bedroom houses with big yards for $80,000. <laughs> wow. Anyway, we'll turn it back to you, Bonnie. <laughs> thanks, guys. Uh, really, really great deep overview um, both from both of you. Um, Stephen, really terrific um, going over of all of the research work you've been doing and then Lee on, on everything that you guys are doing on the ground. Um, one of the, the questions, and I'll, I'll jump into some of the questions that we've got from people, one of the, the themes that seems to be coming through quite a lot in, in these questions that we've got coming into the Google Doc is, um, is around how you motivate for long-term engagement. So uh, once you've kind of got that initial momentum, and and got some got some results and got things moving. How do you keep that momentum going? How do you keep people sustained and engaged? I can't. I well, can talk. Or I don't know how you actually want to take this next section, Bonnie. Do you want Steve to talk generally and me then to West Duluth example? Uh, I think um, you both have such wonderful experience. So please, however you can answer the question best would be terrific. Go ahead. Jump in. Jump in, Lee, and I'll I'll add on. Okay. Um, what I've seen really effective here is a long-term commitment between the city uh, community development, city planning department, and LISC, which is a convening organization, and the major development nonprofit organizations, things like the Land Trust and NHS and the United Way and Community Action, have had a long-term relationship with one another because they realized a long time ago that if they competed, they would be less. And so the organization of that particular collaborative, and that all of those institutions have their own high commitment to mission, to evolution, to uh, increasingly collaboration. Uh, and when, there, when something happens where there's not somebody at the table, then that person, and for example, healthy living and fitness and things, you know, that's a new and, and uh green construction, that's been newer added to the table. They, we just find the new partners or create the new partners to do that. So there's a, there is a long-term institutional commitment, and many of those institutions have as part of their mission community engagement. Now, there's also a thing where some people like to have the same old people involved in community engagement forever. And so one of my projects has been to identify new leadership by doing individual meetings, by bringing people together, by asking questions about implementation, and particularly focusing on, um, I'm going to call the the new generation that um, is 
you know, the, the, the 20s to 35s right now who are planning on making Duluth their life. You know, while, while not leaving out anybody else, but making sure that their viewpoints and their vision are, are incorporated. So yeah, and all, I, I, I come as a, from a community organizing school, and one of the mantras is all organizing is reorganizing, so you're never done. So you always are looking for new leaders. You're always in a talent hunt. And that's something that I've really tried to bring. Yeah, and I, in uh, Duluth, uh, they've got a, a new committee that's forming to uh, actually cultivate new leadership. Uh, not necessarily political leadership, although that might fall out of it too, but actually yeah. new citizen leadership. Because there is this phenomenon over time. You have people who have been doing it for a long time, uh, you know, alternatively known as the usual suspects or whatever. And, uh, you know, um, it's important, you know, that obviously that helps sustain some communities, but over time you really do have to replace energy. And what but, I did is oh, I asked, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say on the, on the, in sort of looking at maybe a little bit higher altitude in terms of this question of how do you made it, motivate long-term commitment to keep going, I really think it's kind of a system of activities. And I, what I'm going to say I think applies to both large and small towns. It's just the scale of how you accomplish it, it is different because we all know in a very small town you just don't have that many resources and critical mass at your fingertips. But the first thing I would say is, as I mentioned with Hillsborough, is branding the process. Once the plan is done, you know, you actually you do not want to put it back on the shelf. You really want to create a brand and a recognition so that once the process is over, it, it almost turns somewhat into, and I don't mean to be facetious when I say this, a bit of a marketing effort to take that brand and get it out in front of people so they recognize, hey, we've got a plan, you know, it's got good stuff in it, now how do we make it happen? That's the second part is the implementation activities. The most effective plans have some kind or engagement strategies. They have some kind of uh, strategy or implementation program, and it can be simple. It can be written on one piece of paper with here are the things that we are going to do in the next six months to a year to accomplish this. You know, some communities like Hillsborough, they have a, you know, they have a five-year action plan and they update it every year, but you can do much simpler versions of that. But there has to be some program to say, prioritize, what are we going to do and where do we start? And then, you know, then it becomes a question of getting runs on the board. And I always encourage communities to, in addition to something big and ambitious, you need, you, you do need the low-hanging fruit. You need a couple projects that are, you know, quick, easy to do, require little, if any, money, are very visible, and will be recognized as such. And, you know, I mean, it might be everything from hanging flower pots on Main Street to, you know, uh, 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 a, what do they call it, a walking bus for local neighborhood schools. Whatever the project is, um, you know, it has to be, if you want some early, easy wins on the board. The, the, the next thing is reporting. You really do have to report back to the community on the successes because people don't know. Uh, there's so much competition for people's attention in this world that unless you have some kind of way to report back to the community, Silkworld, for example, does an annual Vision Town Hall meeting. It's a, really a feel-good meeting, and and you know, for those of us who are planners, those are rare events. But um, they basically report back to the community what's happened in the last year. They give out you know awards to the organization and the individual who've done the most to advance the community's vision. Simple things like that. And I would say that along with that comes celebration. Uh, uh, West Duluth actually is very good in terms of community celebrations where you tie it all together. We had a vision, we did some projects, we've made a difference, and now we're here to celebrate. And that celebration is, it may sound kind of, you know, uh, fluffy or whatever, but it is an important part. Um, 
the final thing I'll say on this, and this is actually an experience from my own hometown here in Bend, Oregon, uh, we found five years into our vision action plan that we have that public awareness was flagging, that people were not paying attention, or if they knew about it, they took it for granted, or maybe they even cast aspersions at it because they felt like then 2030 never did anything, which is actually quite the opposite. So we're now launching what we call our accelerate process to identify just a handful, and I mean just a handful of initiatives involving the community and coming up with accelerator projects that are um, big and visible projects that can help uh, put us back on the radar screen. Yeah, I would just add two things that what we found pretty effective in in terms of maybe they're like accelerators, but they're small things, is, is a whole system of mini-grants. Seed, seed grants were just for a couple hundred or a thousand dollars. List could mobilize to get lots of things going that people, like, helping with the establishment of a community orchard or putting the right kind of sign up for the business group or a gazebo in a park or a new, you know, some small projects, but were the things that when you ask people, what do you think? You know, they, people, if you hear something like, well, we need a complete streets policy or something, you know, that's a planner talking. Mm-hmm. When, a, when someone says, gosh, I just wish they'd fix the swings over at the playground. You know, that's the mom talking. And that's where I like to listen first. And um, because that's where the impact is felt most. And then what I'm doing now in terms of the revitalization of the leadership is I asked everybody in our coalition to nominate five to ten people that they thought were either the usual suspects, because I wanted to know who they were, or emerging leaders. And about 70 people were nominated through that process. And then I began talking with them and meeting with some of them and, and have had three meetings. Um, each has been attended by over 30 with a, a good, you know, a good, the same people who are interested in, I'm calling it building the horse, which is what kind of organization can we build that can pull any cart in any of these neighborhood plans. Oh, and that you know, we could organize around sidewalks 75 different times in Duluth and we might get a couple of them fixed or we could really think about what is the big picture about sidewalks and what are the resources and how can we do that and not have the West Duluth one be in competition with the East Hillside sidewalk group. And people have really responded to this. The first day I just had people, sort of like the commonality question, I hadn't asked it that way, but that's what it was. Um, you know, and it took a long time and... Um, some of the usual suspects are saying, oh, boy, this is just taking forever. But I said, well, how, how does that feel afterwards? Wow, that was worth the whole meeting, just listening to all those people. We met people we've never known before. So that's a great point, Lee. I, um, I, there's a great question here from Sue Munkasta. Uh Sue, are you on the line? You are. Why don't you take yourself off mute? Um <laughs> Sue is, uh, she's got a great note in here, uh, where she says she's running for county commissioner, uh, and they, and in a very divided county in rural Idaho. Sue, do you want to talk to this question a little? Um, I'm sorry, I don't know if you said nearly, but, uh, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, I don't know what the question is. I, well, the I question was asking Sue you... if she was still on the line, uh, if she wanted to jump on. But it doesn't sound like she is. But what her question is about is um, is around commonalities and how in potentially um, conflicting situations or beliefs you can help people find the commonalities 
and shared shared understandings about a place. Right, and I would say that the first of our five themes is probably the the most fruitful area in that regard. That's the you know honoring local values. What I found in all my experience, and I'm sure it's the same for a lot of people who are listening in um, uh, this afternoon, is that uh, you know that a lot of people coming from very different perspectives will share very um, core values about their community. Maybe it might be the smallness, the friendliness of it, uh, the sense of place, uh, maybe some historical features or whatnot. And if you can begin to establish those commonalities, that really can oftentimes provide a kind of bridge between divergent perspectives. It's not necessarily going to take away the conflicting opinions, but it does show that there are things we can agree on. And then for those of us who do do a lot of community engagement and that kind of thing, as you know, that's really a large part of what you're trying to work in the actual process itself when you're engaging the communities, finding things that we can agree on. And so I do think that those those values are something that is uh, is an entree uh, to bridging those gaps. Now, I have worked in communities where they have been very polarized and, you know, practically, you know, uh, at each other's, you know, throats over specific issues. And one of the techniques that I have found that works, because I focus a lot on community vision, looking at a longer-term vision and kind of working back from that vision, is that if you can take people out of the here and now sometimes and look at the longer-term uh, prospects for their community or the things they agree on, the, thing, the ideas they share for its future, oftentimes if you can create a, a, a greater uh, shared longer-term goal, then you can go back and sometimes the shorter-term disagreements don't look quite so daunting. And I found too that the, the question here, which has has because historically Duluth neighborhoods have been very very divided, and they by economics primarily were mainly a white city, but by now we are about twelve percent non-white, and so there's increasing polarization along uh, that line and economy as well. But to say, what is the thing that you like the most about Duluth? Or what is the most precious thing? Mm-hmm. And um, and then that will surface. And then then there's some things which are universally here. See, people are furious about the school system. And so usually I will I, if that kind of stuff starts happening, I take it right on the chin and I say, well, you know what? We're going to disagree on that one. And you all have been disagreeing on that one for the last ten years. So I'm not going to move on that. Let's think about something that we can agree on. And, um, you know, once we work on that for a while, then we can go back to these harder ones. Let's, let's start on an easier one. Like a safe walking route to the new school. Oh yeah, that'd be good. You know, let's do that one. And I, and I don't mean to trivialize this because I, I too have worked, I've worked most of my career in the, in the, in the South Bronx, which was one of the more divided places at one time. Um, but by simply being straight up about, there's some things where people disagree, and a lot of the times people disagree about stuff that's not even local. You know, there are disagreements that are historic or cultural that go for way, way back. We can spend all day arguing about that and never get anywhere. So let's see what we can agree on, and most people can agree on things like taking care of kids and old people. How we do that, there's a question, but that we care about them. I don't know if that's helpful, but that... That's terrific. Thank you, Lee. Um, I'm going to turn to our some more questions from the group, and I'm looking at um, Ina 
for Ina. Are you on the line, Ina Anderson? Um, the question here is around how you sustain community engagement in the absence of funding resources. Yes, hi, it's Ina. Hi, Ina. Do you want to talk to this question? I just uh, I touched on it a little bit. Why don't you expand? Sure. Um, just wondering, you know, I often I work with a lot of community groups um, that get together because they've been offered funding from a local foundation to do planning work. And um, when the funding goes away, well, there's two issues with it. One of them is um, keeping everybody at the table when the funding goes away. And then the second is um, even keeping people sort of um, engaged when the funding that's distributed to these groups is not equal. And so how to do deal with those two sort of thorny issues around resources. Uh, Duluth Lisk is a picture postcard of that. <laughs> because um, our job is, one of our main missions is to leverage national resources to bring locally. And um, what I've seen in my time here is that first, and people, because we've been going through a planning process internally too, is that first people did get together because there was money there. And then they realized that it actually worked better for them to be there, not just because of the money, but that they've now formed, over the last three or four years, have formed real relationships with one another um, so that there is an emergent value of being at the table even if the dollars decline or even if the dollars disappear. Um, and there is some of the tension about how do you, who gets what and how many, how much, um, but by being you know very transparent about that, and um, saying things like what, you know, like our priority particularly this year has a lot to do with uh, economic development. And so how we, we're supporting programs specifically that help families and small businesses increase their incomes and assets. And that's how that decision was made this year because that, you know, in the, this particular economic times, that's where we've really got to work. And people go, oh, yeah, that's right. If I could, uh, I want to just, I'm sorry, are you done? Go ahead, yep, yes, yeah, sir. Uh, just want to, I want to riff on that a little bit and also uh, uh, do a shout out here to, to Jane Latour who's asked kind of a related question about can you talk more about this notion of lighter, quicker, cheaper. And the reason I'm jumping on this is it's kind of a riff on this idea of when you don't have money, it's not so much the parsing out the money, but when the money is just not there. And I want to give you an example that is from around the world, but because I was there recently, I saw it at work and I was kind of blown away by it. This is in the city of Christchurch, New Zealand, where they had a massive earthquake uh, about a year ago uh, that devastated whole sections of the city, including its uh, central business district. And in some of the neighborhoods, they're going through kind of a triage process now because some of the areas can't they can't plan for it because they've been so destroyed they're going to be abandoned. So we won't talk about those. And and they're not focusing on the areas that survive. Are we there? So what's it, Stephen? Sounds like we lost him. I'm sure he'll call back in. Lee, did you want to keep riffing on this or uh should we move Well I wanna I'd like to but first of ask the question whether that's helpful. I mean I think the sustaining you have to make even from the beginning of making figuring out how do you create the value that goes beyond the dollar. Um I appreciate the what you said about the sort of the value about the relationships that you build. Um that people you know, the value that's created by those relationships outside of the funding um 
situation, and I think it's really important. Sometimes um, you have to help people see that, I guess. And, yep. Um, <laughs> well, I guess that's the challenge. One one example here is where the United Way. We have a a, a big uh, disparity in in the graduation rates of uh, Caucasian, Native American, and African American students, and none of us at the particular table and the school district is with us in this um, can are looking at that or have the resources to quote solve that problem but the united way has who's also at our table has created a delegation of the different groups and towns including the five area colleges who might be able to have a contribution to that solving that particular issue and that allows all of us who are in relationship with the united way to be part of that delegation in whatever way we can and so, um, I'm sorry, I just got cut off, but I'm back online. I'll just face that so, so that the community action after school programs can now tie better in because of the delegation. So it just is, it's, it allows integration in a lot of different, different ways. And, and when we're, we're developing a particular, the land trust is developing a particular property, uh, they can, they're already in relationship with the people who provide the most supportive housing for active alcoholics to make sure that that can be accommodated in the, in the, in the building, for example. You know, they, they bring in the, the surface service providers at the same time as they're building the construction. So it all goes as a piece. Terrific. Thanks. Thanks, Lee. Stephen, I know you got cut off. Did you want to add to what you were saying earlier? Uh, no, it was just the, the only point was is that in communities where, you know, I mean, they didn't even have the luxury of sort of thinking about would this be nice to do. They had to do something really quick, and they had to do it without a lot of money. And so I think, you know, oftentimes when I work with communities, I, but when people start asking the money question first, I always say, well, hang on here a second. Let's figure out what we want to do first. What's important that we get done? And then let's look at the resource question. Because if you start with the resource question, how much money do we have? What we can, can we do? I think you're going to end up with a different set of priorities and not necessarily a good one. So I'm going to draw from a couple more questions here from the document. There's a great one. Is it Nubia Kolaros? Uh, if you're on the line, do you want to speak up? Yes, I am. I am. Hey, hey there. Uh, do you want to speak to this question that you, you've typed in? Yeah, well, um, I was thinking uh, while this conversation was going on, um, a specific thing that I want to bring up uh is that uh, organizations like nonprofit organizations that are helping the community and they have different ideas how to implement a vision of a plan uh, that they, these nonprofit organizations are the ones that, are, that bring conflict to the community. How do you uh, avoid this? How do you build a bridge between these uh, nonprofit organizations? Uh, I, want to see if I, I wanted to see if I understood the question that you're saying that basically there becomes a competitive a competition between nonprofits about whose way should be followed. Exactly. And they're working in, in, in well, all I can kind of say is shame on them. Um, <laughs> but uh, they're, this is where a group, if, if, if you can figure out a group that has the authority of the convener or the vision of the convener, um, that can say, 
look, there's a bigger picture here. Uh, and this is where, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I would, I would think about talking to those folks about, you know, why are, why are you competing in an area where, uh, there's no shortage of problem? You know, you should both, both be working, you know, don't divide yourself. And I always like to think about the principle of subsidiarity, which is that you do everything at the lowest possible level that you can get done. And um, if there, I mean, I, I guess for me, when I've seen that happen, if I can't, and, and I work for a, 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 a combined organization in the Bronx for many years, and if there were people who just weren't going to um, work, stand for the whole, I mean, there's some common values of social change, standing for the whole, uh, subsidiarity, um, you know, they were just considered harmful. And then sometimes you just can't can't support their work. Um, it, is, it is very frustrating that I'm working with a couple of number of organizations that are just, they, each one believes that they are right. And well, there's a, there's, a, there's a really wonderful essay called The Importance of Being Unprincipled. Which is written in 1939 and talks about the, the the futility of not being able to compromise and kind of the intelligence that it takes to say, okay, let's make a deal and move forward together, or else we'll just fight and die together. And I like sharing that kind of thing. Okay. Um, let me add to that, and uh, I one of the reasons that um, Hillsborough, Oregon, has been so successful is that they really address this from the outset. And I will say that. Um, from my perspective, the you know the nonprofit uh, and uh, community group uh, sector in Hillsborough is is very collaborative. So I mean they do have an advantage there. But I mean every community is going to have organizations that have different sets of priorities. Sometimes there'll be personality issues or power struggles and all that kind of stuff. And you know you don't want to make your process beholden to those struggles. I think that's what Lee is uh, trying to get at there with her her examples. Is that uh, you know if you let the process bow to that dynamic. You'll, it's going yeah, to take you'll, the process, it'll take the process down with it. You'll get and, nothing uh, but that. Yeah, and I think well, one of the one of the uh, benefits of the visioning model that Hillsboro has been using again, they they're focused on the long term that that stretches organizations out to look at what kind of goals they can share, and then in the shorter term action plans they do, they have these five year action plans, and they have uh, I think there are twenty something like twenty three partner organizations from across the spectrum that are what they call lead partners in the plan. And uh, it includes the city, the county, local cultural organizations, uh, the hospital, the school district, the library, the parks, and on and on and on, as well as some private sector organizations, the local chamber, for example, as a member. And every organization that is partnered to the plan has taken on some piece of the plan that they believe in and that they are willing to do. So in essence, by doing that, they don't necessarily have to buy into the com- complete slate of actions. They only have to buy into that piece that they know they can do, they can believe in, and that everybody thinks is part of the longer-term vision. And that might be one model. Um, you know, it, it's not yeah. easy to get there uh, where you have that kind of a level of agreement, but I, I, I do think it's possible, and I have seen it work. And we have something here, which is a governance agreement with the members of the, co- of the main at-home collaborative where the people who want to be part of the core group um, have a board resolution passed that 
the implementation of these plans in a collaborative way is going to be part of their mission from here on in. And even though there are agencies at the table who don't, there are a couple that are there because they want to make sure that the interests of the lowest income people in Duluth are always present at the table when we talk about neighborhood planning. And they don't have a particular uh, job. I mean, they're not going to say we're going to remodel 16 houses or, you know, build 10 jobs. They're there to represent a constituency that they fear might be left out if they weren't there. And we all know that's why they're there and that's why they're there and that's their job. And they do that and that helps the plan implementation be better. Um, but my, my point on this is that people agree that these are the, these, that, that doing this plan is an important part of their mission. Mm-hmm. And yes. again, they can't do it all, but none of us can do it all. That's why we have to be together. Thank you so much. So I think we've got time for one more question, and there's a great one that I saw here from Tom Flanagan. Tom, are you still on the line? If you're on mute, take yourself off mute and say quick hi. And if you're not, I will read it out. I'm trying to. Oh, we got Tom? Yes, he is. How you doing? Say hi, and uh, why don't you ask your question here? I actually don't have the question in front of me. I'm terribly embarrassed about that. <laughs> <laughs> but we do, I bet, somewhere on that document. Let, I could interpret what I really meant. Let me paraphrase for you. The question that you typed in was, how do you move stories to three communities? Right. Do you want to kind of, speak to that a little? Yeah, that's kind of my, my theme, is that um, making the transition between an event to a campaign um, in my experience in working closely within universities, universities are very good at events, but sustaining a, a transformative uh, community process is a little difficult, and uh, I don't know exactly how to do that. I think that there's a sense of a commitment with museums or alternative or extended learning environments, but I don't know what experiences people have had. Well, it's uh, uh, actually, I mean, that is really kind of a, a, an overarching theme of this uh, study, Tom, and it's also something that I'm uh, personally uh, working on here in Bend. Uh, Bend has a 2030 vision plan that they created five years ago, and uh, that's very much what we're about now is uh, creating the the human infrastructure, if you will, to continue the plan over time, and we're looking at all kinds of ways to do that. I mean, it's really basically we have found that uh, we're doing great work in terms of implementing, you know, some of the actions that were included in the community's vision plan, but there's not a lot of great recognition of the achievements. We, we in Bend, a city of 80,000, we have 63 organizations that have signed on to this vision plan, so that is really impressive. And yet still, you know, it's hard to keep the general public clued into what we're doing. And when you think about it, there's just so much competition for people's attention. Um, I think we live in an ADD world, you know, that just makes it hard for people to focus on this kind of stuff. So we are very much in the present moment really trying to uh, figure out how to do that, and we will be launching this accelerate process that I mentioned earlier. And it does have a an outreach and marketing component to it as well as a serious planning process attached to it to to, to update our vision. But I agree with you, you know, oftentimes plans are, particularly planners' plans are designed to go on shelves, and then there's just this expectation that they will happen, and they don't. Uh, there has to be a conscious, um, 
conscious uh, participation. I might end my comments by saying that, you know, we've been delighted to have uh, Lee here from uh, the West Duluth neighborhood. There are four other uh, case studies uh, in the uh, stewardship study. I think it's going to be released in about two weeks' time. Is that right, Rebecca? Yes, that's about right. Yeah, so uh, keep your eye peeled to the website, and I'm sure you'll be on the the e-blast list when the study comes out. The other communities provide very different, you know, and some are in communities, rural communities with declining economy. Some are in rural communities that are in the path of uh, suburban, ex, uh, you know, expansion, particularly in the case of uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and there's there's a real range of communities, and I'm hoping that if you uh, uh, spend a little bit more time with the final study, what's released, you might find more uh, answers to your questions. And, and I know that there's a follow-on process now that Bonnie will kind of tell us about. Um, but where we go from here. And I just want to add one sentence to the question that Tom asked. Is yeah. we're creating something here in Duluth called Ambassadors where we're identifying about 100 people who will tell good stories about Duluth and its progress. <laughs> and then how to organize that both as a social network kind of thing but in different, you know, and, and so, you know, we're all, you know, turning over our, who are, who are the best ambassadors to Duluth because it's part of the 90 by 20 and part of the, you know, the neighborhood revitalization is we know that we've got to spread good stories about here. And so that's what we're doing. I, I, I really resonate with that because I sense we're moving towards an oral tradition given the information overload in tech. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, Orton also has a, a fabulous paper that they've done on storytelling, which I'm sure you can access by going to their website, uh, which is chock full of ways and approaches to use storytelling for that very thing you're talking about, Tom. That's uh, some great answers there, guys. Um, speaking of next steps, we're, we're getting close to the top of the hour here, and I just want to hand over to Rebecca from the Orton Family Foundation briefly to give a little overview of an opportunity that you can take advantage of if you would like to. Rebecca, do you want to chime in? Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Um, thanks so much to everybody for joining and for all of your really engaging questions and creative thoughts. Um, it's clear so many of you are struggling with and succeeding at really interesting challenges on this topic. So as you may know, if you tend to participate in our conference call series, we are trying something new this spring. We're doing a follow-up call after each of these main conference calls. They're geared towards people who are really working on these issues on the ground and want to get on the line and hash it out with some folks. Um, and we want to give you a chance to really dig deeply into what's going on in your community, ask the specific questions you're struggling with, and get ideas and suggestions from your peers. So I'll be sending around an email to follow up from this call with a podcast and notes and an invitation to join us in two weeks for that follow-up call if you want to do it. We'd love to have you on the line and hope that we can both get your ideas and get you some help for whatever it is you're struggling with. Thanks. Terrific. Thanks, Rebecca. Now, we typically close out these calls with uh, just a couple of quick actions that people can take uh, as soon as they jump off the call to start implementing in their communities. Stephen, do you want to kick us off with uh, something that, that people could take away and, and get started on when they hang up? Well, I guess, I guess the simple one is that spend a little time with the study because it really is chock full of stuff, particularly the uh, five case studies. Uh, there's no way we could give uh, do justice to the just the incredible ideas and energy from these uh, from West Duluth and uh, the other five communities. So if you actually read the actual case studies which are in the center of the report, you'll uh, you'll get a lot of specific ideas that I think will be useful. 
Terrific. Thanks. And Lee, do you have a, a closing uh, idea that people can take away? Yeah, I would say uh, take about an hour or think through everybody you know and five people that you don't know that you'd like to get to know that you think could make a difference in implementing your plan and go to an individual meeting with them in the next week or two and kind of make, it, make, make a steady diet of meeting new people to talk to new people, uh, hear their stories, and keep adding to the loop. So Brilliant. I find whenever I am uh, need a little boost, I think, oh, yeah, I better go meet some new people and find out what they think. <laughs> <laughs> That's great advice. Well, uh, with that, I, I would like to thank everyone for joining us today, particularly Stephen and Lee um, and Rebecca from the Orton Family Foundation. Uh, if you have posted some questions in the Google Doc and haven't had them answered, we'll be digging into that and making sure that everything does get answered in the next day or so. And then that document and the recording of this call will be available for you to download at your leisure. So again, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I hope everyone has a terrific afternoon and uh, see you all next time. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now.